Section 10 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Denham. Chapter 10. Habsburg and Valois by Stanley Leiths. Part Two. The truce between the great powers and the League of 1538 led to the hope that something serious would now be undertaken against the Turks. But exhaustion, the mutiny of soldiers at Goleta in Sicily, in Lombardy, a thousand reasons made it impossible for Charles to put out his full strength in 1538. The force that was sent under Andrea Doria to the Levant from Sicily, Naples, Genoa, and Barcelona to cooperate with the Venetians under Papal Squadron had no orders to undertake any great enterprise. The Venetians desired to attack Prevesa at the mouth of the Gulf of Arta, where the Turkish fleet was lying, but Doria was unwilling to risk so much on a single encounter. National, urban, and personal jealousies were at work. The League, like other leagues, soon showed its inherent weakness. Futile skirmishes were the only result, and the Allies soon began to talk of peace. Charles had important business elsewhere, in the Netherlands, in Germany, and the enterprise was put off. After long negotiations, delays, and disappointments, the Venetians made peace with the Turks, October 1540, surrendering Noplia and Monembasia. Not only the affairs of Germany becoming more and more complicated, but a serious difficulty in the Netherlands contributed to this result. The War of 1536 had necessitated application to the States-General of the Netherlands for a heavy subsidy. All the provinces consented, 1537, and in Flanders the three members, Ypres, Bruges, and Le Franc, gave their vote, but Ghent refused. And when Mary declared that the grant of three members out of four bound also the fourth, and took measures to levy the city's quota, the citizens appealed to Charles, who gave his full support to his vicegerent. After prolonged discontent, at length in 1539 Ghent broke into open rebellion. The government of the town gave way to the pressure of the mob, fortifications were repaired, militia was levied, the subject cities of Ghent, Alost, Oudenard, and Courtrai were drawn into the rising, and Mary was obliged to recognize the revolutionary movement. At this moment, the friendly relations of Charles with France stood him in good stead. Charles had recently lost his beloved wife, Isabella of Portugal, and the French king hoped to engage him in some profitable marriage alliance. He offered a free passage through his states, and Charles, though he refused to hear of any marriage propositions, accepted the offer. 
leaving instructions to his son Philip for the event of his death, which show that he would have been willing to allow the whole Burgundian dominions to pass to a French prince as the price of a permanent accommodation, he passed through France, met Francis at Loche, December 12, 1539, and was accompanied by him to Paris. Here he was royally received, and set on his way to Valenciennes, where he met Mary, January 21, 1540. Thence he proceeded to Brussels. The news of his coming, with the assembling of German troops, had quelled the rebellious, irresolute spirits of Ghent, and on February 14 he entered the city without resistance. Its punishment was stern, though not excessive. Nine of the ringleaders were executed. The town, by tearing up the famous calfskin, had declared its own sentence. The constitution was forfeited, and an oligarchical government set up. The disputed subsidy and a money indemnity in addition were exacted. The city was deprived of its rights over the surrounding territory and neighbouring towns. A fortress was to be built to prevent rebellion in the future. Solemn submission and humiliation was required. Finally, on these terms, the city was pardoned, at the price of all its remaining liberties. This rapid collapse of a formidable rebellion increased the prestige of Charles very opportunely, for the death of Charles of Gelders in 1538, instead of diminishing his difficulties, had increased them. The estates of the duchy had at once proceeded to the election of William de la Marque, the heir of Cleves, Berg, and Eulich. The death of his father, Duke John, soon followed, 1539, and the union of the four duchies under a prince whose leanings were Protestant was a serious menace to the Habsburg power in the north. Francis I gave Jeanne d'Albret to William of Cleves, Treaty of July 17, 1540, which compensated for the rejection of his sister by Henry VIII, announced about the same time. The project of settling matters between Charles and France by one of several alternative marriage schemes had again proved impracticable, and this French alliance with a German prince, an enemy of the Habsburgs, showed a renewal of French hostility, the more so that Charles had hoped that, by a different disposal of Jeanne's hand, the question of Navarre at least might be settled for ever. Charles replied by investing his son Philip, October 11, 1540, with the Duchy of Milan. Affairs in Italy were fairly quiet. The reduction of Camarino by the papal forces, 1539, the revolt of Perugia, 1540, the refusal of the Viceroy of Naples to allow his forces to cooperate in its repression and quarrels between Ottavio Farnese and his bride were not sufficient 
to disturb the firm foundations on which the Spanish supremacy was built. The rebellion and chastisement of the Colonna were allowed to pass as of purely local importance. It was thought that some of these movements had been instigated to induce the Pope to give effect to the long-promised council, but the council, which had been put off time after time, seemed as far distant as ever. The conference at Ratisbon, 1541, and the benevolent intervention of Contarini proved of no avail except to show that the Lutherans would not accept even the decisions of a general council. Secure for the time in Italy, and temporising as usual in Germany, Charles thought the moment propitious for another attack on the power of the Barbaresques. When war with France once more became inevitable, the control of the western seas would be valuable, and meanwhile commerce and coast towns urgently required relief. Since 1538 an attempt had been made to win over Barbarossa by way of negotiation. Charles hoped to secure the corsair for his own service, to create for him a vassal kingdom, including Tunis, and to turn his arms against the port. But at the last moment Barbarossa declined the proposals, and Charles determined, if possible, to destroy his power. In July 1541, two French envoys, Antonio Rinson, on his way to Constantinople, and Cesare Fregoso, accredited to Venice, were set upon near Pavia, and killed by Spanish soldiers. Their papers were not secured, but the general nature of their errand was notorious. This delayed the conclusion of a new alliance between France and the port, and before it could be formed it was necessary, if possible, to take Algiers. The knowledge of the warlike preparations of the French king seemed to make postponement till the new year impossible, and although the Diet of Ratisbon, the journey through Italy, and a hurried interview with the Pope had brought Charles to September, and his most experienced advisers declared that the season was too late, he determined to push on his expedition. It was October 20, 1541, before the fleet which had collected at Majorca met the Spanish contingent off Algiers. Heavy weather prevented them from landing for two days, and when at length they were able to put the men on shore, the artillery, the supplies, the tents, were left on board. A tempest then smote the army, who were at the same time attacked by the Barbaresques. Fourteen galleys and a hundred ships were driven ashore, and Doria was obliged to draw off. The army had to go now, to Cape Matifu, where they took ship again at Bugia, and with difficulty set sail for their homes, after severe losses, and without any compensating success. November 1541. This failure encouraged the French in their long-determined scheme of attack. New agents had concluded the arrangements with the Sultan, 
and although the Venetians and Lorraine refused to join, the alliance of Cleves, with the support of Denmark and Sweden, promised results, though not in Italy. The main object of this time was the Netherlands. Antoine, Duke of Vendôme, July 1542, marched upon Artois and Flanders, hoping for a rising in Ghent and Antwerp. From the side of Cleves, Martin van Rossum advanced with eighteen thousand men, and the Duke of Orléans with a third army entered Luxembourg. A fourth army entered Roussillon under Francis and invested Perpignan, but the defence of Perpignan under the Duke of Alva checked any further advance on this side. Van Rossum, after devastating Brabant, and threatening Antwerp, joined the Duke of Orléans in Luxembourg, where before long no place of importance held out, excepting Thionville. But the capricious withdrawal of the Duke of Orléans from Luxembourg, with the intention of sharing in the great victory expected for the king in the south, took the heart out of this attack, and the Netherland troops soon recovered Luxembourg, except Ivoire and Damvillers. In Roussillon, instead of a victory, an ignominious retreat followed. The following year was threatening for Charles. The Sultan was advancing in force upon Vienna. Barbarossa, after devastating the coasts of Italy, joined the French fleet under the Duke of Enquien, and laid siege to Nice. August 5, 1543. The city surrendered before long, but the citadel held out until it was relieved by the approach of Del Guasto by land and of Andrea Doria by sea. September 8. Barbarossa returned to winter at Toulon, where throughout the winter Christian slaves were openly sold. Francis, on his part, invaded Hainaut, but Charles, leaving Barcelona for Genoa with the fleet of Doria, arrived in Italy, May 1543, and after a hurried interview with the Pope, whose desire for Milan or Siena he was not able to content, continued his journey towards Germany with a small force of Spaniards and Italians. The council already summoned, 1542, to Trent, had to be postponed. Other things for the moment were more pressing. Ferdinand was left to manage as best he could in the east. At Speyer, Charles picked up a considerable force of Germans who had assembled to bring aid against the Turks. But Charles led them on with him to Cleves, and attacked Duren. In two days the city was captured by assault. In a fortnight the Duke was at his feet imploring pardon, and on September 7, 1543, a treaty was signed by which the Duke broke off all alliance with France, Denmark, and Sweden, and ceded the Duchy of Gelders with the county of Zutphen. This success fully compensated for the reoccupation of Luxembourg by the French, which was completed about the middle of September. 
Charles moved into Hainault to effect a juncture with the troops which Henry, his ally in this war, as he had been in his first, had sent to Calais and advanced, October 20, to the siege of Landrecy. Francis was in the neighbourhood with a superior army. Charles was anxious to meet him in the field, and advanced in hopes of tempting him to battle. In this he did not succeed, but the retreat of the French army left him with the honours of the campaign. But the war was not over, and Charles needed all the aid that could be by any means procured. Charles was induced to promise to invade France in the coming spring, with an army of thirty-five thousand men. Peace was made with Christian III of Denmark. At the Diet of Speyer, 1544, Charles met the German princes, and by extensive concessions secured the neutrality or support of the Protestant estates. François, Count d'Anguin, had invaded Italy, and advanced to recover Carignano, near Turin, which del Guasto had occupied. Del Guasto hurried from Milan to relieve it, and d'Anguin, having received permission to risk a battle, attacked him at Cerasole on April 14, 1544, and completely defeated him, with the loss of some eight thousand killed and two thousand prisoners. All Italy began to consider the division of the spoil, but their hopes were vain. The Spanish, holding all the strong places of Lombardy, were able to prevent Donguin from any further success. Piero Strozzi, who had collected ten thousand foot at Mirandola, advanced boldly to Milan, in the hopes of joining Donguin there, but the Swiss refused to move for want of pay, and Strozzi had to extricate himself as best he could, and the brilliant victory of Cerasole had no results. Still, the news of this defeat rendered his success at Spire the more welcome to Charles. His army under Count William von Fürstenberg now advanced upon Luxembourg and recovered his duchy. The siege of Saint-Dizier was then undertaken, and on July 13 Charles arrived, with 10,000 foot, 2,300 horse, and 1,600 sappers to take part in the siege. Here the Prince of Orange was struck by a bullet and died on the following day, leaving as his heir his more famous cousin, Count William of Nassau. The siege dragged on, while the Dauphin and the Admiral Annebeau, with a strong army of observation, lay at Jalon between Epernay and Chalon, and outposts at Vitry harassed the besiegers. But on July 23 these outposts were crushed with considerable loss to the French. On August 17, Sancerre, the captain, surrendered Saint-Dizier with all the honours of war. Charles now advanced on Chalon, and declining to attack the Dauphin's army, pressed on to Chateau-Thierry and to Soissons. September 12. 
if Henry's army had shown equal enterprise, the case of France would have been desperate. He arrived on July 15 at Calais with the bulk of his army, and was joined by the Count von Buren with a small force from the Netherlands. Leaving the Duke of Norfolk to besiege Montreuil, he proceeded with his main force to besiege Boulogne. Without aid from him, Charles had reached the end of his tether. His relations with the Pope were becoming more and more uncomfortable. Paul had allowed Piero Strozzi to raise troops in his state. The Orsini had been suffered to join him, and the Pope was considering the gift of his grandchild Vittoria to the Duke of Orléans, with Parma and Piacenza as her dowry. On the other hand, Charles' position for concluding peace was favourable, and he seized it. The result was the Peace of Crépy, September 18, 1544. Henry was informed of the terms which Charles was willing to accept. He disapproved of the conditions, but was forced to content himself with Boulogne, which surrendered on September 14. On both sides the territory occupied since the truce of Nice was to be restored. Francis was to renounce all claims to Naples, Flanders, and Artois. The emperor did not insist on the restitution of the Duchy of Burgundy. The rivals were to cooperate for the restoration of unity in the Church and against the Turks. Charles was to give to the Duke of Orléans either his eldest daughter with the Burgundian lands, or the second daughter of Ferdinand with Milan. If the Netherlands were given, Charles was to retain the supreme dominion for his life, and Francis was to renounce his rights to Milan and Asti, which were, however, to revive in case there was no issue of the marriage. If Milan were given, the Emperor was to retain effective hold on the duchy until a son was born, and the gift was declared to be a new fief, not dependent on hereditary rights of the House of Orléans. The King, in return, was to give a handsome appanage to his son in France. As soon as either of these transfers took place, Savoy was to be evacuated and the questions of right between the king and the duke were to be decided by arbitration. These public conditions were supplemented by a secret treaty by which the king was required to aid in procuring a general council to give help against the German Protestants, and to assist the emperor to a peace or durable truce with the Turks. The Dauphin, shortly afterwards, made a solemn protest before witnesses against the treaty as contrary to the fundamental interests of the kingdom. The Pope was left out in the negotiations, although the religious motive is prominent in the conditions. But Paul was obliged to accommodate himself, and to avoid worse, he issued a fresh summons to the Council to meet at Trent on March 15 of 1545. Thus, 
another stage is reached in the settlement of Europe. The war of 1543-5 to differs from preceding wars in that the principal effort was directed on the Netherlands, that an attempt was made on both sides to win substantial support in Germany, that Italy was neglected as no longer offering a favourable ground for attack in spite of the possession of Savoy. It resembles the Second War in proving that offensive operations on either side, though in this war more extensive and determined, could not lead to any permanent result. The solidity of the several countries was more abundantly demonstrated. The ugly features of this episode are on the one hand the alliance of Francis with the Turk and the Corsairs of Barbary, on the other hand the concessions of Charles to the Protestants of Germany, which involved either treason to the Church or the betrayal of his dupes. But some excuse must be made on the ground of the extremity of his need. Charles was a zealous churchman, but he could not master fate. So long as he was opposed by France and the Ottomans, ill-seconded, even thwarted by the popes, he could not in addition take upon himself the task of coercing Protestants in Germany. He, and he alone of the princes in Europe, formed a just opinion of the religious danger, and did his best to meet it. His desire for ecclesiastical reform was frustrated by the blind opposition of the popes. Toleration was forced upon him as a political necessity, but to sacrifice the material to the spiritual was a virtue that lay beyond his ken, and one, moreover, ill-suited to the spirit of the age. After all, Charles was a temporal prince, and as such his first duty was to the state which he governed. The peace of Crépy set Charles free for the first time in his life to intervene effectually in the affairs of Germany. His religious zeal is attested by the stringent repressive measures which followed in the Netherlands, and the edict 1544, which called upon all his subjects in the hereditary Habsburg lands to conform to the confession of Louvain, the acts of a bigot, perhaps, but a good man cannot do more than follow his conscience, and Charles was a conscientious Catholic. His first need was to come to an understanding with the Pope. Charles proposed to him definitely the use of the great sums accumulated for a crusade against the Turks in a war against the Protestants, and in support of the Council. At the Diet of Worms, March 1545, the refusal of the Protestants to be satisfied with a general council in which the Pope would be both party and judge was openly declared. Charles held himself released from his obligations to the Protestants by this attitude, though indeed the proposed council at Trent was very different from that which he had promised. But the Pope still hung in the wind. To win him, the material must be sacrificed to the spiritual, 
and the exact nature of the sacrifice was made clear when Paul invested his son Pier Luigi with Parma and Piacenza, August 1545, in spite of the claims of Milan to these districts, and without the imperial sanction. Still the General Council was actually opened at Trent in December 1545, after many delays and proposals for a removal to an Italian city, which the Emperor emphatically rejected. The choice of Trent was a compromise. Italian cities would attract only Italian clergy, who were too much interested in the abuses of the Curia. German cities would be acceptable only to the Germans. A truce was concluded with the Turks in October 1545 on very unfavourable terms. The decision of Charles between Milan and the Netherlands as the marriage gift of the Duke of Orléans had at length been made in March 1545. Milan was to be given with the second daughter of Ferdinand, but the death of the Duke of Orléans in September relieved Charles of this necessity. Charles was thus free to act in Germany, and after the futile religious conference of Ratisbon, 1546, and the so-called Diet which followed, he signed a treaty with the Pope, who pledged himself to send twelve thousand men to the support of the Emperor, with a substantial subsidy, and to allow considerable levies from the ecclesiastical resources of Spain, June the Emperor was anxious to keep the terms of the League secret, but the Pope was eager that it should be known, and in letters to the several states he published it at once, exhorting them to join. But the course of the German war aroused once more his fear and suspicions. Only the obstinate resistance of the Emperor had prevented the Pope from removing the Council from Trent to some town where he could more effectively control all its proceedings. Many differences had arisen over the policy to be observed with reference to the Council. The Pope sent his troops, though not the full number, and the two hundred thousand crowns which he had promised did not arrive. Difficulties were raised with regard to the pledging of church lands in Spain. The emperor was obliged to raise money by an agreement with the southern cities of Germany, promising them religious liberty. In January 1547 the Pope withdrew his contingent, the six months for which he had promised it, having expired. He was intriguing with the French. In March 1547 the Council was removed to Bologna, and the Spanish bishops refused to follow, while Charles refused to recognise the Council at Bologna. The victory of Mühlberg, April 23, 1547, made Charles' position still more formidable. An actual rupture between the Pope and the Emperor seemed probable, suggested not only by fear of Charles' exorbitant position in Europe, but by minor Italian interests. The solidity 
of Spanish power in the Italian peninsula was apparent especially at this juncture. Ferrante di Gonzaga, who had been named as governor of Milan in 1546, though the appointment proved unfortunate, secured at least the support of Mantua. The Venetian policy grew more and more cautious, and the greater this caution, the greater the difficulty of disturbing existing arrangements. The policy of Ecole II of Ferrara was almost equally prudent. Cosimo de Medici showed himself the faithful servant of Charles, and in view of his watchful guardianship, troubles at Lucca and Siena might pass almost unnoticed. Naples was in the firm hands of Toledo. Doria seemed safe at Genoa, and could be absolutely trusted. Only the Pope showed inclinations to disturb the settled order, and in the interests of his greedy Farnese family. And so long as the other factors remained unchanged, he was powerless for serious harm. But in Italy revolutions were always possible. The remarkable enterprise of Francesco Burlamacchi, directed from Lucca against Florence, with the aid of the Strozzi, failed miserably. 1546. A more dangerous conspiracy was set on foot in Genoa by Gianluigi Fiesco. Gianluigi, moved by the loss of his own property, jealous of the power of the Doria, and taking advantage of the discontent of the people with the constitution of 1528, which gave all the power to the old nobility, had long since entered into relations with France for the overthrow of the Doria, and the Spanish power resting upon them. The possession of Genoa was the key to the peninsula, and the wealth of the Genoese capitalists a mainstay of Charles. On the other hand, the immense debts owed by Charles to the Ligurian financiers secured for him the support of the moneyed interest, but could hardly prevent a sudden stroke of force. The Pope allowed Fiesco to arrange for the purchase of four of his own galleys, at that time lying in Civitavecchia. 1546. The Pope's relations with Doria were far from friendly, apart from any animus against the Emperor. The time fixed for the attempt was the night of January 2, 1547. At ten o'clock the conspirators, who had a galley and three hundred foot-soldiers at their disposal, issued from the palace of Fiesco in three bands. Fiesco himself with one made for Doria's galleys, seized them. And in the attempt to prevent the liberation of the galley slaves, fell overboard and was drowned. The other two bands made for two of the gates of the city, and at the noise of the tumult, Giannettino, the adopted son of Andrea Doria, came up and was promptly killed. Andrea, however, escaped with his life, and when the conspirators looked upon their work in the morning, they discovered that their own chief was missing. Left thus without unity or direction, they wavered. The senators offered them an amnesty on condition 
that they left the city, and the formidable plot resulted in nothing but the re-establishment of Doria and his master. The amnesty was revoked, the possessions of the conspirators were confiscated, but Doria succeeded in repelling proposals for the reduction of Genoa under direct Spanish rule, and for the erection of a fortress. Certain alterations were made in the constitution for the purpose of securing authority to the partisans of Doria, but Genoa retained at least the forms of liberty. The castle of Montobbio, the sole remaining possession of the Fieschi, became a danger for a while, but surrendered to the forces of the Republic on June 11, 1547, and Doria succeeded in suppressing other plots instigated by Francesco and Pierluigi Farnese. The removal of the council from Trent came a little too soon for Charles, and it would have been impossible for him at that moment to follow the radical council of Cosimo de' Medici, February 6, 1547, who advised him to use his power for a complete reform of the Church through the council, taking away the tyranny of priests, reducing the power of the Pope to its proper spiritual limits, and restoring the pure faith of Christ without the abuses that had grown up about it. Charles was powerless to prevent the removal of the council, though its subsequent adjournment was a concession to him. The gulf between emperor and pope widened, but neither of them was anxious for an open rupture. Henry VIII had died on January 28, and Francis I on March 31, 1547 and the whole scheme of European policy was likely to undergo revision. The Pope would not move until he was sure of support, and Charles was too busy in Germany to wish to provoke complications in the peninsula. Henry II of France showed friendly inclinations towards Paul, but gave him no more definite assurance of friendship than a promise of the hand of his natural daughter, for Orazio Farnese. From England under Somerset nothing was to be hoped. The negotiations of the Pope with Charles still turned on the investiture of Parma and Piacenza, and the addition of Siena, as much as upon the question of the Council. Charles was determined that no session should be held at Bologna, and although the Pope had set out to preside over a solemn session intended as preparatory to the close of the council, Diego de Mendoza, the emperor's envoy, had succeeded in procuring a further postponement when a series of unexpected events changed the whole situation. The aspect of Naples and Siena was threatening, but the cloud burst in Piacenza. The progress of heretical opinions in Naples was notorious, and in May Paul had sent a commissary to the kingdom with a brief which hinted at the establishment of the Inquisition. A rebellion at once followed, and the small Spanish garrison was in difficulties. But the prompt 
and judicious measures of Toledo, and the assurance of Charles himself that he had no intention of introducing the Inquisition or of allowing it to be introduced, soon restored order. Yet an uneasy feeling remained that the brief had been sent with the secret intention of provoking revolt. Siena had already in 1545 risen in arms against the imperial commissioner Juan de Luna and the Monte dei Nove, whom he supported, and had driven out the Spanish garrison. Cosimo succeeded in preventing any great excesses, but Francesco Grassi, whom Charles sent from Milan to appease discontent, failed to effect a compromise. The citizens took up arms again, and accepted the protection of the Pope, protesting against any foreign garrison, and excluding the Noveschi from any share in the government. Cosimo, however, succeeded in procuring the acceptance of his own mediation, and on September 28 a garrison of Spaniards was admitted. Mendoza arrived in October, restored the Noveschi, and set up as before a governing body of forty, ten from each monte, but insisted on naming the half of them himself. November 1548. In Piacenza the rule of Pier Luigi Farnese was hated. His measures for reducing the nobility to obedience by depriving them of their privileges and forcing them to live in the city, though salutary, made him many enemies. Private wrongs increased their number. Gonzaga, who represented the forward policy in Italy, was anxious to take advantage of the troubles at Genoa and Siena to establish direct Spanish rule over those cities, and the discontent at Piacenza was much to his mind. Aware of the hostile movements directed against him, and of the support given by Gonzaga from Milan to his assailants, Pierluigi prepared to defend himself by the building of a fortress at Piacenza. This accelerated the blow which had been long prepared by Gonzaga. On September 10, 1547, the conspirators took up arms. Pierluigi was killed in his palace, and the city was in the power of the rebels. Gonzaga's promptitude is a sufficient proof of his complicity. On the twelfth he entered the city, and occupied it in the name of Spain. Of the projects of his minister, Charles had been sufficiently informed, and although he had counselled prudence, he had not discouraged the enterprise. It was an act of open war against the Pope, wounding him where he was most sensitive. Charles de Guise, the newly elected cardinal, appeared at Rome in October, and this seemed to give the Pope his opportunity of revenge. Conditions for a league with France were drawn up. Parma and Piacenza were to be given to Orazio Farnese, not to Ottavio, the emperor's son-in-law. The king was to supply troops for the defence of the papal states, 
French bishops were to attend the council at Bologna, the Pope was to contribute seven thousand men, if the king were to be attacked in his own states. The projected league, like many others, though ostensibly defensive, was really intended for offence. The Diet of Augsburg, 1547, gave Charles a lever in his negotiations. He was able to offer the submission of all Germany to the Council as a price for its return to Trent. But the Pope referred the decision to the fathers at Bologna, who decided in favour of that city. Charles could do nothing but enter a solemn protest before the assembly at Bologna, and in the consistory, January 1548, and the Spanish bishops remained at Trent. Negotiations continued, while the council remained, in effect, suspended. Threats made by the Pope of an attack upon Naples came to nothing, and a fresh plot conducted by Giulio Cibo against Genoa failed. On the other hand, Henry II was not satisfied with the terms of the League offered by the Pope. Meanwhile, France was arming, the Pope was arming, and Charles put his possessions in a state of defence. Cosimo de' Medici occupied Elba and Piombino for the further defence of his coasts in the imperial interest. The remonstrances, however, of the Genoese, who feared an attack upon Corsica, led Charles to take these places into his own hands. The visit of Henry II to Savoy and Piedmont, May 1548, proved to be no more than a reconnaissance in force, and led only to the seizure of the Marquisate of Saluzzo. Further delay was caused by the French war with England, which broke out in 1548 over the Scottish question, and the Pope's revenge had to be postponed. The interim, May 1548, agrees with the tone of general European politics at the time. Every power was seeking to enjoy the benefits of time, and in such a policy Charles was a master. End of section 10. Recording by Tom Denham.